It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, my name is Dan Rubin, and I'm a proud member of the board of directors of the Shalom Hartman Institute. If you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you like Jewish ideas. So do I. In fact, every time I learn with Hartman, I email my kids the big ideas and new perspectives that inspire me. Now I can also forward them podcast episodes. My three children have very different points of view on Judaism, politics, and Israel. Yet I find that if we base our discussions around Hartman ideas and values, we can talk together about a Judaism that has meaning to them, about concepts that make their Jewish identity stronger, and about approaches that keep them committed to the idea of Israel with all of its complexities. I support Hartman because it enriches Jewish life in North America and Israel, and because of what it does for me and my family. I hope you'll join me today by making a year-end gift to the Hartman Institute at www.shalomhartman.org. Thank you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. And we're recording on Sunday, December 5th, which is particularly relevant because as of the time of this recording, it's still Hanukkah. Though by the time you hear the show, Hanukkah will just have ended. And there are some important Hanukkah tie-ins to today's conversation. So one of the most interesting phenomena of modern Jewish life is to witness the different evolutions in Jewish culture and practice between Israeli and North American Jewish communities. And Hanukkah is actually one of our best witnesses. My Hartman colleagues in our other podcast, For Heaven's Sake, discussed that this past week, the ways in which American Jews subtly evolved the meaning of Hanukkah over time towards a message of religious freedom, while Zionist Israelis leaned more into the military victory and the importance of national pride in the face of cultural and political threats. Meantime, over on Twitter, scholars and pundits fight for weeks about the quote-unquote original meaning of Hanukkah. And those issues, whether it's a political holiday or a holiday of religious freedom, are usually the terms of the debate. You can also argue the question inside the North American Jewish community itself and the internal debate about whether we have been molding Hanukkah too much to look like Christmas and to use it as a trigger for the ways we should and shouldn't be assimilating is a kind of an evergreen question. But lost in all of this, I realized this week, is that I think that the singular most important transformation that Hanukkah has undergone in the past half century was largely the doing of a single individual. Put simply, I think much of what we see and identify as the Hanukkah celebrations of our time, especially in the American public square, is due to the leadership of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Chabad Lubavitch, a Hasidic sect we should probably start referring to as a denomination of American Judaism, and perhaps the fastest growing one, pioneered the practice of gigantic but real Hanukkiot in American public squares. It did so in opposition to the dominant ethos of American Judaism. There are an amazing exchanges of letters between the Rebbe and the head of the reform movement and others, and against the American Jewish concern that advocating for our religion in the public square 
would in turn validate the right of Christians to do the same, and then in the long run, we as Jews would lose. But if you look around today, Chabad won this argument definitively, from the White House to whatever neighborhood you're in. I'd argue that much of the Jewish performance of Hanukkah in public and the insistence that we get to celebrate and define our Jewishness in public at this time of year is because Chabad took a countercultural lead and won in the marketplace of ideas and identities. And just to hear the idiom with which the Rebbe talked about this as a distinctly American and patriotic idea, this is Lubavitcher Rebbe's letter to the Jewish community of Teaneck in 1981, when he says to celebrate Hanukkah and to put our menorahs in public is, quote, fully keeping with the American national slogan, E Pluribus Unum, and the fact that American culture has been enriched by the thriving ethnic cultures which contributed very much, each in its own way, to American life, both materially and spiritually. In other words, for Jews to be really Jews in public was the most American thing we could do. I'm totally fascinated by this, and I'm fascinated by Chabad in general, which I think is a window into the evolution of American Judaism over the last couple of generations, and maybe will help us understand a little bit about where we're going. To unpack this, to talk a little bit about Hanukkah in America and a lot about Chabad in America, I'm excited to be in conversation today with uh, Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone, who directs social media for Chabad.org and is the founder of Tech Tribe, a kind of organizing principle for Jews in the tech world. Mordechai, thanks for being on the show this morning. Thank you very much. Happy Hanukkah, a good Chodesh, all of that. So um, you gave a TED Talk in 2018 uh, where you used the famous Hasidic story from, I think, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe about um, that we need to be lamp lighters, people who go around and carry um, our lamps in the world and bring light to wherever it happens to be missing. It strikes me that, you know, maybe this is unfair, but I'd love your sense. It strikes me that, like, the biggest time of year for Chabad is Hanukkah time. Like, it's like the high holidays. You know, reform movement, you're going to get one time a year and it's going to be on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but Chabad, it's Hanukkah. Tell me a little bit about the particular relationship between Chabad and Hanukkah, whether what I'm seeing is totally absurd or whether it actually captures a piece of the ethos of what you think Chabad is trying to do. Well, I wouldn't say exactly that it's the high holidays in the sense that from the Hasidic point of view, every day is the high holidays. Every day has its own special revelation of godliness coming to the world, its own chance to make a difference. Uh, the question is only how you tap into the specific meanings of that day and use the potential for that day to do something new and innovative. So Hanukkah, because it is a holiday that is um, really about Pirsumai Nisa, really is about the Pirsumanes, taking and broadcasting and sharing, you know, godliness in this world and the, the miraculousness that is life and is, you know, existence. Uh, since that is the message of these eight days, it is a time that we are particularly, I guess, focus on taking that message and spreading it forth. Right. So it's kind of the perfect storm in terms of especially a movement that wants to bring a message about God and Judaism into the world. Why do you suppose, though, it kind of took off in America? I mean, it really, according to Jonathan Sarna, it really only starts in, I think, 1974 at the Liberty Bell is like the first major public menorah lighting. And now it's like um, someone will say, you know, how come Chabad is the only one who gets to light the national menorah? And you're like, there is no national menorah. Chabad brought about the national menorah. It's kind of become so much part of our ethos to assume that there is going to be a public menorah lighting everywhere. And that's only in the span of 40 years. So how, how come you think that worked so effectively? Right. So I would say that from the Chabad point of view, the way we, you know, if you look at kind of Jewish sources, Hanukkah was always a big deal. You look at the Rambam in particular, he speaks about the importance of Hanukkah from a kind of a religious point of view and even points out, and this is by the end of the halacha and the Jewish law itself, that if a person only has enough money for Kiddush wine, which is the Shabbos, the foundation of the week, or Hanukkah candles, the money spent on Hanukkah candles as opposed to 
Kiddush wine, taking a step back from a reality when Jews were, you know, forced to choose between those two, which is, you know, something relatively foreign to us today, thank God. Um, but it shows the importance of Hanukkah as a holiday. And within the Hasidic communities in general, those communities that study Kabbalah and have a special focus on that, Sephardic communities, Hasidic communities, Hanukkah was always a big deal. That said, I think the Rebbe understood American Judaism in a way perhaps better than American Jewish leadership did at the time and kind of saw towards a time now where everything is very intersectional. So as a past where you were, you were a Jew at home, an American in the streets, to kind of paraphrase that concept, um, the Rebbe understood a time when a person would be Jewish in the streets and American in the streets and every other form of identity they have and share that with pride. So therefore, Hanukkah has that potential to be able to, you know, because it's all about sharing and, and tapping into who you are and what you are and sharing that pride with the world, um, it, it's particularly apropos in the American scene. You know, I know you're not a historian, but like, I'm curious, like it, it happened to happen at like around the 80s and 90s. And I'm just wondering if you have any particular insights, 80s, 90s, and even the last 10, 20 years about what motivates, I understand now what motivates Chabad to want to do this. I'm curious what, when you see American politicians eager to kind of light the Hanukkah candles at the Chabad menorah at any particular time or enthusiastic crowds. The Rebbe even says, you know, we, I believe that many people return to Judaism because of being able to see the menorahs in public. I guess I'm just curious kind of anecdotally why you think that happens. What has happened in our own ethos in the last 20 or 30 years that's made this so popular? Right. So, um, I mean, I'll just share a, a personal story conveyed to me by a friend of ours. They have a son who learns in a prestigious private school, not a Jewish school, um, and one that I guess could be called nominally um, Christian in terms of its ideology. Um, and there is a very large menorah right outside of where the school happens to be. And so she told us how her son, you know, when he leaves school and, you know, there's all of the non-Jewish things going on in the private school over there, he comes outside and he's able to see this massive menorah you know, right in the center of the area. And it's a moment of pride for him and a chance for him to look and be able to see how Judaism is something that isn't just something inside of you, something, you know, hidden, like the jug of oil that's kind of hidden within you, but really something that can broadcast and speak to the public and is a chance and a way for people to take their Jewish identities, whatever they may be in terms of, you know, their particular expression and see how that they can really, you know, shine light into the darkness and take that public stance and share it publicly. So one of the things that Chabad, I guess, comes under criticism for yeah, the Rebbe was insistent in his writings, we are not in the proselytizing business. I, I think most Chabad rabbis I've talked to will say the same thing. But it kind of looks like it is, right? That it's not merely about spreading Yiddishkeit, spreading Jewishness, but trying to get people to behave Jewishly in a particular way. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit? Whether the criticism that Chabad is really trying to get everybody in the world to be Chabad, that it's much more of an evangelical or a proselytizing business than you and the movement would claim it would be. How do you think about that dynamic? I mean, ultimately, I would say, um, not even tongue-in-cheek, but those people might want to check their privilege in the sense that often I hear that complaint voice from people who are really engaged Jews. No matter what their particular modality of Jewish expression may be, these are people who have gone to Jewish schools, take part in Jewish study, um, go to synagogue, you know, maybe it's only a certain amount of times a year, whatever it is, but they have formed and chosen the Jewish identities and they have access to the privilege to be able to express their Judaism the way they want. I would say this is for them as well. They want to take part, but ultimately they aren't the target audience. That the people that this speaks to the most, the people that are the most in need are the people that don't have access to that Jewish background, that Jewish education, that chance and ability to be able to get it. Meaning, you know, if you have a menorah at home and you want to make it a private event, that's your right and your privilege. But if you don't have a menorah at all, then the fact that this is now available to you as a place to come together, a place to express your duties and a place to get the tools you need to bring a menorah home and whatever it is and take that home with you, you know, this is making that accessible to those people. 
I mean, Hanukkah, as far as last I checked, is not just a Chabad holiday. It is a, a universal Jewish holiday. Uh, and one that all of us, you know, uh, choose to practice as, as we see fit. And I think most uh, Jews actually do fulfill Hanukkah. And, you know, not just in the, the simplest sense, but in the way that's mahadrin, minimum mahadrin. They do it in the best way possible, where they light all eight candles. If you look in Halacha, you know, it speaks about the various ways of doing it. It's the one holiday in which we all are the super mahadrin in how we go about doing it. We choose to, you know, exercise it and practice it in, you know, the fullest way possible. And so for those people who don't have access, you know, this is what it's there for, to be able to give them the tools they need to be able to celebrate it at home. I like that point. I think that's really interesting. I think you're probably right descriptively that the people who are frustrated are people who have a very coherent sense of what they're going to do with their Jewish life and practice and not necessarily the target audience. But I want to come back to that because I have a theory as to where that comes from. We can come back to that. Um, but you said something interesting in the answer to the previous question, which is to become Jewish, whatever that practice may be. But like, how agnostic are you really about what success would look like? It's because like, the end goal is not really just, hey, take this Hanukkah menorah home and light it. Or the end goal is not just, great, I got another person to put on tefillin outside of Penn Station. You actually want something to happen, presumably, with respect to that individual and their life choices and their family choices. And I suspect it's not that agnostic. Like, great, if they become a Reformed Jew, it's a victory for Chabad. Can you talk through a little bit of the dynamics of what you're hoping will happen in terms of Jewish life and practice through the process of this kind of outreach? Yeah, so I would say actually that is the end goal. A lot of this is tied into the Hasidic understanding of what a mitzvah is. That If you look in Hasidic sources, and the way it speaks about the accomplishment of a mitzvah. Um, I'll get a little Kabbalistic here. I'm assuming your audience can That's, a, that's great. They can, um, they can handle it. Yeah. Um, so that when a person does a mitzvah, ultimately it creates a kesher, a connection between the nivra and the bora, between the, the created entity and the creator. And this is kind of hidden in the word mitzvah itself, which is connected to the Aramaic word safta, which means a bond, a connection. And what you're doing is you're creating a safta v'chibor. You're creating a connection, a bond between yourself and God. And when you create that connection, even if it's only a one-time act, I put on tefillin now, and tomorrow I don't, or whatever it is. I like menorah now, and you know tomorrow will be whatever it is. That one-time connection is a connection with something infinite. And when you connect with something infinite, you connect with something transcendent, and you bring that revelation into the world, that is an infinite connection that continues on. And this is kind of an idea that it speaks about a head never put on tefillin before, um, that when a person puts on tefillin one time, it has this eternal kind of, you know, long tail uh, effect on the person um, himself. That all mitzvahs that we do are a chance to be able to create this eternal bond with the Creator. And therefore, the fact that right now I can help a Jew do a mitzvah, you know, that is a world to itself. Do I want every Jew to do more? Yeah, I, I want myself to do more. And because I want myself to do more and I want to grow as a Jew, and I believe that is part of Judaism, is the idea of growing and, and changing and challenging yourself and taking on more and exploring more. That's something I would like every Jew to do. But ultimately, when I hand that jewel menorah, I don't have some sort of ulterior motive that I want to transform them and expect them to show up in a black hat tomorrow. If I give someone a menorah today, and they come with a black hat and a beard tomorrow, I'd say, like, slow your roll. Like, dude, like, let's, you know, <laughs> do this in a healthy way. Um, it really is about that one-time mitzvah. So I don't think there is this agenda in the sense that, you know, giving somebody the chance to take part right now has some sort of long-term goal. It's, it's you know, it, there, there's a sense of joy that, you know, like, I have something I'm passionate about. I want to share it with you. And when you do this one thing, this is an entire world. Yeah, I mean, it, it would seem intuitive that if you want someone to wear a black hat, you wouldn't give them an aura, you give them a black hat, right? Um, I guess what's interesting about what you're saying, I never thought about it this way, but it kind of makes sense to me now, 
you don't use the language of identity. You haven't used the language of identity at all. And it seems like the American Jewish community uses the language of identity all the time. What kind of Jew are you? I can actually displace the question of what you believe or how you behave through describing an adjective about you. And you're basically saying, I don't really care about your identity as a Jew. I care about you doing an express set of activities, this one or that one, right? Build a sukkah, put on tefillin, light a menorah, light Shabbos candles, etc. And that in and of itself is considered the telos. That's the end goal. And what you look like in terms of your identity, that might be a totally different conversation. Does that distinction make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, our identity is the same. We're Jewish. You know, the ways in which we express that may take on slightly different forms. But ultimately, the Judaism that we share, myself, the person, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses himself, we're all equally Jewish. That Judaism isn't different between us. And therefore, it's not a question of identity per se, because the identity is already there. Um, you know, each and every one of us is, is the same on a level. The question is our ability to be able to take part and do one more thing, so to speak. So let me ask a little bit of a political question that emerges as a result of that. So let's say the whole enterprise is getting Jews to do more Jewish things. Um, mitzvot, another way to describe mitzvot is more Jewish things. Um, if that's the sole objective, then in theory, Chabad could be interlaced and interwoven really powerfully with the rest of the Jewish communal infrastructure. And oftentimes it's not. In fact, oftentimes it stands apart from or it's in conflict with. And one of the most prominent places where this happens is in the context of the college campus. And I would guess that the Chabad shlichim, the Chabad emissaries on college campuses don't view their work as competitive, right? They're there to help foster and promote doing various Jewish activities, but it winds up creating essentially two different industries. There's Hillel and there's Chabad. In theory, if the whole business is about getting more Jews to do Jewish things, it doesn't seem to me that those have to be in such um, contradistinction to one another. So why does it seem to be that the rise of Chabad is creating so much tension with the existing Jewish ecosystem, which is also, in some sense, about getting Jews to do more Jewish things with other Jews? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm a little surprised to hear that in the sense that I do know Chabad rabbis on campus who work very well with the Hill colleagues. Yep. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, when you have that kind of competition... I guess you'd have to look at a local level and see the dynamics between the parties involved and, and what's going on. But ultimately, you know, when you have more Jews doing more Jewish things, the more Judaism wins. And if the presence of, you know, both options, I guess, exists, as it were, and students choose to get involved with one over the other, then ultimately they're choosing to do more Jewish stuff as a whole. So I think it's a net positive for everybody. I could say from a personal point of view, you know, where we host a big Shabbat meal at a tech conference every year, I'll be a little light on details with the... There was, uh, you know, an organization that we'd worked with said, you know, this year we're going to do our own thing. And I think they were worried that'd be upset. But I said, like, listen, you know, it's like it's more Shabbat. You know, <laughs> people don't lose when there's more Shabbat. Uh, so therefore, I don't think, you know, it should be viewed as a contradiction at all. I, I think Chabad is part of the Jewish infrastructure at this point in time. I believe from the Israeli point of view, that's definitely the case where you have yep. Israelis. You know, I, I remember years ago there was an earthquake in New Zealand. And the Israeli embassy in New Zealand tweeted that if you need help, go to Chabad. And I've seen other similar cases like that take place as well. That's half a world jewelry right there. Chabad is part of the ecosystem. And I think from America on my campus, for sure, it is as well. You know, if people choose not to view it that way, then I think that would be their own subjectivity and that bias kind of playing in because it's definitely there and definitely available for people to tap into. Yeah, I mean, the biggest ecosystem piece, especially as it relates to Israel, was when the Israeli Ministry of Diaspora funded initiatives towards Jewish education in North America wound up giving, I think, a third of their funding to Chabad on campus. So that's a signaling, a third to Hillel, a third to Chabad. It's signaling, okay, this is the infrastructure as it is. I guess I'm curious, so this is maybe a small question, but whether you think that one of the things that we may see in the next 10 to 20 years is Chabad Shlichim simply going into those jobs. 
Like if my goal is to promote Jewishness on a college campus, instead of setting up shop and all of the complexity of raising my own funds and doing everything I need to do, which I assume is quite difficult, why not just apply for the job to be the executive director of the Hillel and then essentially do the work inside the house? Right. So, I mean, there definitely have been cases like that as well historically. I believe Rabbi Wolf, who's a Chabad rabbi in Sydney today, had his start at a Hillel, I want to say somewhere in the upper Midwest. I don't remember where exactly. Um, I might have been in, in, in Canada. But in any event, you know, he, he had his start as a Hillel rabbi. And that possibly definitely exists. I, I would say, to take a step back, I think one of the reasons why people kind of look at this competition um, is because for whatever reason, due to the myopia of American Jewry, historically, there's this idea that Chabad was this little, you know, upstart thing that came out of nowhere and suddenly became big. The reality is, historically speaking, Chabad has always been big. Um, if you look at the history of Jewry in, you know, in Russia uh, during the times of the Tsar, Chabad was one of the major players on the scene for Russian Jewry. When you had various rabbinical conventions to deal with, you know, anti-Semitic decrees, so the Chabad rebbe's were incredibly active in that and took a leading role. So Chabad has always been kind of a, a, a big deal in that sense. I think today, as Chabad continues to grow, so we're always going to do. Judaism the way we see it, the way we understand it, the way the Rebbe set forth and set the tone and set the message. And from that point of view, if Hillel has its own agenda, it may not be possible for a Chabad rabbi to become the head of a particular branch of Hillel just because Hillel is going to do what Hillel does and Chabad is going to do what Chabad does. But the idea that the two can't work together is, I think, is just, you know, misunderstanding the reality that they can and do and should work together to make Judaism more available to everyone. I think one of the other big obstacles that gets in the way is that a lot of what is imagined as hostility towards Chabad is actually envy. I see this a lot in the organized Jewish communities of why is it that Chabad can do X and get this kind of crowd and we can't do it? As opposed to saying, how do we imitate it? Like I've been frustrated for a decade now. Why hasn't non-Orthodox Judaism, conservative movement, reform movement, sent young families to live near college campuses, invite people for Shabbos dinner? If you know that it's a model that works, why not imitate it? And there's all sorts of rational reasons that get deployed as to why it can't happen. But I think it winds up generating this sense of envy, of they're somehow better at this than us, and therefore they must be doing something wrong. Um, I got to figure out, like, underneath the surface, what's actually going on there. Right. Do, you, do you experience that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say ultimately Chabad success is not just the model itself, even though I think that is tremendously successful, but it is kind of the, the passion and drive that the Shulchan have, which I don't know if others, it is possible for that to have 100% and should exist. But, you know, that kind of drive that, you know. Yeah, we're, talk about that. Talk about it more. Because that's the thing, right? Uh, somebody just told me recently a story where they said, they commute into Penn Station, and the same guy standing outside of Penn Station every day trying to get people to put on tefillin. And he asked him after a year, how many people put on tefillin? The guy said seven. And he said, but it didn't, didn't phase him, didn't, didn't make him any less excited every single time he asked people to put on tefillin. So there's something there around drive and around passion. Can you unpack that at all? Like, what's, that, what's going on? It's actually just to show a kind of a Hanukkah paradigm for this as well. The New York Times used to have a section where people would write in and share local stories. So in the early 90s, someone wrote in that, you know, I think he lived in, in Brighton Beach or somewhere in South Brooklyn. The, the doorbell rang, excuse me, are you Jewish? I'd like to give you a Hanukkah and on. The person said, you know, my religion is not your business. Please go away, whatever it is, and we'll let you in the building. And then the person says, okay, thank you very much. And then goes to the next door. And, and since, you know, the intercom is still on, um, the lady writing in was able to hear that the boy ran the next bell and said, you know, and it was unfazed. It continued on, even though she just yelled at him. Um, I think, listen, when, when you, you really love someone, you really love a person, you're out there to do it for them. No matter what, you know, and that's a relationship, so to speak. Even when it's difficult and it's trying because the love is there, 
you know, the action continues. And in that sense, I guess we're, we're just crazy about Jews that we're really uh, willing and, and ready to be able to go out there and, and continue. And it could be difficult and it could be dispiriting. You know, my son, who was 11, decided he wanted to get a mitzvah tank for his class this year. Those aren't familiar mitzvah tanks, are these RVs that are taken and converted and they drive all around New York City for sure. I think it's part of the Hanukkah celebration in New York, without a doubt, to hear the parades and hear them going by. And so he's 11 years old and officially has to be 12 in the yeshiva, but he convinced the principal to let him do it. Part of it was that he and his friends pre-raised about half the necessary money. He launched a GoFundMe. He took over my Twitter account with my permission and, and sent out videos. And he and his classmates ended up bringing in like $4,000 to be able to get this mitzvah tank. And there were times, you know, the first days of the spirit, and he came back and like, you know, we only met one person, whatever it is. And I said, you know, it's one person is a whole world. You meet that one person, that one person is everything. Then you know, you did everything right now, you know, and beyond that fact that you're there, you're on the street, people see you, people see you acting properly and asking them, you know, in a nice way and acting respectfully and being excited about what you do, you know, that can influence people as well, even if you never hear about it. But the fact that they saw you doing what you're doing, that has tremendous effect. So you mentioned your Twitter account, right, which I know is a big part of um, a big part of your job. I spent some time on social media, too, not nearly with the kind of reach that you have, you know. I've also, as I mentioned before, your TED Talk, which I think people should definitely watch. You're a believer that once this is the public square, then it's your job to bring light to the public square, regardless of what it looks like or where it is. But at the same time, you know, it's also kind of a sewer, right? I mean, it's a bad place. We know the ways in which social media has resulted in deep amounts of disinformation, in tremendous amount of abuse that's leveled at people. I guess I'm just curious, like, how do you stay in it? How do you maintain your fortitude? And what do you think about the critiques that say that it's not just about bringing light to this space, it's actually the whole space in general has done something so deeply corrosive to our public discourse that participating in it is a form of enabling it? Right. Um, so I'd say in terms of how I'm able to go about doing it, so to speak, uh, I made the decision when I first got on Twitter, I'd come, I'd been blogging previously, and I was kind of engaged in that kind of blogging back and forth and debate with people and things like that. And very early on, my wife looked at me and said, you don't seem very happy when you're looking at your phone and dealing with Twitter. And I decided, why am I here? I'm here to share what I'm passionate about, to connect to Jews, you know, specifically, you know, from my personal account, Jews in tech and digital media, you know, from the Chabad Dog account uh, that I help run, you know, Jews in general. And I'm here to share light and to share goodness and connect to people. And if that's what my focus is, and those are the people I'm going to engage in, and that's what my focus is going to be, then the other stuff becomes background noise, where, you know, I don't have to respond to everybody, you know, just because someone says something obnoxious or whatever it is. So there's a mute button for a reason. And I focus mm -hmm. on connecting to the people that I want to connect to. And in that sense, you know, particularly on Hanukkah, you know, Twitter is an incredibly powerful and, and profound tool for enabling Jewish action. You know, just the first night of Hanukkah, somebody tweeted that they had just moved to Brooklyn and they didn't have a menorah yet. And so I you know, said, where are you? And the person said, well, I'm, you know, it actually technically was Crown Heights, but it was just the other side where Bed-Stuy starts. So person said, you know, I'm in Bed-Stuy. These are Brooklyn neighborhoods. For those who know, no. Um, so I said, you know, uh, let me get you a menorah. And under an hour, I was able to get, my wife was driving around with my son. She picked him up from the Mitzvah tank and made a detour and took the menorah and were able to give it to this person. The person was able to tweet a picture of the menorah kindled. And that wouldn't have happened without Twitter. You know, a Jew within a stone's throw of 770 with a Chabad headquarters and everything going on over there felt isolated as a Jew and felt like there's no access to Hanukkah at all. And here with one tweet, we were able to get them a menorah, I think is, is pretty amazing. In other words, as you see it, I can't control the variables of how destructive these media can be. All I can do is effectively control the variables of what I have to say on the media and whether I can actually do something good in the world. Um, even, even more than that, really. Twitter exists 
for Jews to like menorah and for you know non-Jews to share positive things and for us to do something positive. If people choose to corrupt that and use it for a negative purpose, you know, then they're corrupting what is really potential. There's a, there's a medrash that says that why was gold created? You know, because gold, people lust after gold, start wars over gold, make idols out of gold, even when it's not an idol, it's still an idol. But gold, the medrash says, was created for the base of Migdash in Jerusalem, it was made for the temple in Jerusalem. And technology, you know, the way the rabbi described it, is there for the same purpose as well. That God created everything for a purpose and gave us the ability to create these technologies. And therefore, if they exist, they're there for us to use them for something positive, to be constructive, and to really, you know, reveal the essential oneness that we all have. So Twitter is this big, you know, public platform. Um, yes, it has the ability to be corrupted, just like gold can be used for negative, you know, reasons. But ultimately, it exists to allow us to be able to do something positive with it. And if we're not taking advantage of that opportunity, then number one, the platform will still exist. You know, it's not going to go away. We're just going to be losing out on the ability to be able to use it for the purpose for which it was created, which is to share goodness in the world. One of the most obvious ways in which social media has become a destructive force, and it is particular to us as Jews, is around the rise of anti-Semitism. There are some pretty clear connections between the ways that people were able to identify others around the world. A lot of neo-Nazis living in their mother's basement actually could become community through the existence of these platforms. And we've seen a rise in public anti-Semitism. I'm curious how you and how Chabad think about this rise of anti-Semitism in America and to what extent it influences or affects at all the strategy of kind of public proud Judaism. Does it amplify that strategy? Does it require any sort of emendations? And I know you're living in it because in the New York area, the most significant rise of anti-Semitism has been in Brooklyn. So I'm, I'm curious how, how you and, and your community are thinking about this. Right. So I would say, um, in terms of the internet, this is not a new thing. Um, I found an article written in 1996, I want to say, that said, you know, what if we built an information superhighway? And, you know, that was the term. It was just used for, you know, for anti-Semitism, racism, whatever. So this has always been an issue. Uh, I think, ultimately, the way we, you know... Um, the way we confront anti-Semitism, and it's real and it's serious, and in terms of actual security needs, those need to be paramount as well, in terms of whatever's necessary. That said, the question is, you know, how we choose to view this. I think too often American Jewry kind of makes that in and of itself an expression of their Jewish identity, that my Jewish identity is dealing with anti-Semitism. And the reality is that our Jewish identities have to be, they're much deeper and much more profound, much more transcendent than that negativity that we face. And, you know, the negativity will not go away. But the question is our option and ability to either become spoiled from it, to use a Hasidic term, become affected by it and become, you know, kind of negatively impacted, or our chance to transcend it, to engage in the positive, to engage in the good, to show our Jewish pride even more in an even stronger sense. And through that, that kind of you know, pushes any negativity to the background. I mean, I once had this Twitter interaction where somebody, you know, was like saying a bunch of anti-Semitic things and, you know, was in my mentions as, as they say online, was, you, know, you know, saying all this you know, negative stuff. So I said at one point, you know, you don't uh, seem to be familiar with very many Jews. So the person said, well, I don't like speaking to Jews. You know, they're awful people. You know, well, why would I want to talk to them? So I said, you just spent half an hour debating with a Hasidic rabbi in Brooklyn. You know, uh, <laughs> so if you don't like speaking to us, you could, you, could, you, could, that, you could see the door and leave. And the person stopped responding. So, yeah, I mean, the negativity exists, but, you know, it's our decision to engage with it or not. And then when we broadcast our Jewish pride and who we are and what we do, I think that helps, you know, shape the discourse in a much more profound way. But it also has a different effect, which is the more that you show up as publicly Jewish and visibly Jewish in public, the fact of other people wanting to do harm to Jews, I don't know, it kind of has this weird effect that it reinforces that you need to keep showing up publicly as Jews. Like there's a very, there's one strategy which would say, as the rise of anti-Semitism, Jews should go underground, be less visible, be less obvious. 
but I guess in a Chabad worldview, that makes no sense. Like, okay, so they're showing up publicly and criticizing us as Jews. We're going to keep showing up publicly, and we may not win. We may not defeat anti-Semitism. We may be, in fact, wounded by it, but it actually doesn't alter the mission statement, so to speak. I mean, I wouldn't say we don't win. I think that's uh, antithetical to the approach worldview that we have, that ultimately you do win. Um, you know, when, when you hide, then you are you're getting caught in their game, so to speak. You know, that's what they want. Uh, there's a, an exchange of letters between the Rebbe and Elie Wiesel. Obviously, the Rebbe had a profound impact on his life in various ways. So at one point, the Rebbe told him that by writing his series of books about the Holocaust night and kind of sequels, and, you know, showing that he was able to use the destruction the Nazis wanted to, you know, put upon him to turn it against them. The Rebbe told him ultimately by not choosing to be able to not move on, because you can't move on, especially for something like that, but to continue to grow as a Jew. And I think this was in the context that he didn't want to have uh, children not having, you know, uh, a family, you know, then ultimately the Nazis are winning to a certain degree that, you know, they wanted to destroy you and they have, they, they, they scarred you. But if you can grow from that, you could take those wounds with you. But if you can grow from that and continue to do more, then you are really truly defeating it. That ultimately we're not going to hide from the negativity out there, but it'll continue to exist no matter what. It'll continue to fester. It doesn't go away when we're quiet. But when we are proud with who we are and we share the world, the number one, you know, we're doing what we need to do. And I think that builds allies as well in the sense that when people see Jews publicly doing Jewish things and, and they have those conversations and, you know, they're, they're aware that this person is Jewish and, you know, suddenly become hits, you know, home, you know, someone says something anti-Semitic in a workplace and everyone's kind of quiet and the one Jew in the corner is kind of, you know, whatever about it, then people may not even realize they're Jewish. But if the person, you know, comes to the keep on or whatever, I'm, I'm just making up, you know, examples over here, but it chooses to engage Jewishly that people realize that this is affecting the, you know, someone they know and love as well. So I think ultimately everyone wins. So listen, um, Hanukkah's over. Um, by the time that people will have heard this show, we got a lot of perspective from you about what it is that Chabad does and why and, and what the particular unique tie-in is. Looking forward over the next couple of weeks, uh, next couple of months, it's a complicated time for Americans in general, still with a pandemic, still with a tremendous American political divisiveness. Um, I'll let you finish with um, with a closing message that you'd love to give to people after Hanukkah is over, once the menorah is taken down, about what are its dominant ideas that continue to animate our lives Jewishly as we look forward. So famously, when it comes to the story of Hanukkah, one of the miracles is the finding that what's called a small jar of oil that was able to light the menorah and be able to add light. And that small jar of oil represents kind of the spark of Judaism that exists with each and every one of us. Within each and every one of us, there is a godly soul, a divine power that flickers within us. And if we tap into it and we share it, and we're able to not just bring light into the world and kindle that one flame, but able to actually increase in light. The message of Hanukkah is, Moshe for that you are continuing to add in light. You start with one candle the first day, and you end up with eight candles on the eighth day. And the reality is that after that point in time, then the light of the menorah transcends the eight candles. That, you know, if you look at the world, we live in a cycle of seven. You know, the week is seven days long. Creation is seven days long. That represents the natural order. The eighth light, the eighth day, represents that which is transcendent and above and beyond the circle of time. So when we tap into that potential that exists within each and every one of us, we could take light and help it shine and bring it out there the farthest possible reaches. And therefore, the message from Hanukkah is to go to all eight, to transcend your limitations, to take that small amount that you have and to continue to grow and continue to do amazing um, things and always take one step more. So I guess that's the Hanukkah message which goes with this holiday is that we have the ability to really bring new light into the world and make sure that we go out and do it. Well, thanks all for listening to our show this week and special thanks to my guest, Rabbi Mordechai Lightstone. 
Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by M. Lewis Gordon, with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhevet Schwartz and music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week. A belated happy Hanukkah, and thanks for listening. Thank you.